Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey, Lindsay Davis. And I've realized every time you're on the show, I always start with, hey, Lindsay Davis. No one else gets that treatment, but it's a good good intro, right? Absolutely. Hi, Jason. How are you? Fantastic, actually. I'm not. (laughs) What? Take Uh, that back. It's Monday before International Women's Day. Oh, yes. International Women's Day that... You don't even want to know the pitches that we've gotten and how poorly written they can. Well, actually, most pitches are poorly written, but it seems like International Women's Day brings out some very weird pitches. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But hey, you know what pitches rhymes with? Oh, my goodness. Stitches. This is a children's stitches. Yes. Don't get stitches. So we decided because you were willing to accommodate since I'm doing single dad week again in doing a late night recording, we are doing fintech and fine wine. Actually, your wine is finer than my wine, although my glass is better than your glass. What do you want to talk about today? Like what's on your mind these days? Well, I don't know. I think think we raised the series b so we could talk about that well yeah you had some little news around that so we'll talk about your series b you know kind of like the new news around raising funds does bring up for me like i've been thinking a lot about like where are we in the cycle like the the cycle that keeps going up within fintech just keeps going up and up and up and up and is it sustainable? And when you look at the numbers around how much money from incumbents and others, and the fact that JP Morgan says they spent $7 billion on you know digital and tech, like it's crazy. So let's talk about kind of where we are. Well, I and, think it's validation to the space, if anything. If JP yeah. Morgan is willing to notch it up the budget from what was a billion a couple of years ago, back when I was covering the space at CB Insights as an analyst, to seven billion. And on top of that, making investments in spaces that they'd otherwise told the universe that they would not have any business in. Which brings me to one of the other things I want to talk about is Web3 metaverse. We hear about it all the time. What the hell's going and on? And JP Morgan has its own blockchain its own blockchain and its own virtual branch. I mean, all right. Well, there's, there's a lot of physical branches still out there. Yeah, true. They're the only ones that are adding branches during the pandemic, mind you. What else is on your mind? I would love to talk about South by Southwest. Uh, That's coming up very soon. And we're co-sponsoring an event and I am a total noob and self-admitted that. So I was supposed to go, but then COVID happened. So we'll talk about that. And one of the things I would love to build on with South by is this view into the future and trend spotting. And mm-hmm. how do we think about trend spotting and who do you follow? And one of the trends I want to talk about is changes to business models, because you and I have been talking about this as it relates to venture is you know, this rise of the solo general partner. What does that mean? And I think there's a broader impact for fintech and how like we actually see products develop. So why don't we yes. launch in? Let's start with the news of the day, which is you. Let's talk about you. Oh, um, no, not for too long. No, let's talk about Atomics. Us, like, yeah. Well, first, before we get into the specifics of the deal, what was it like raising in this hybrid world? Like Jordan it- has done it a bunch and he's fantastic at raising. So for him, this is a series B on top of having done a series A and a seed and starting the company fully remote. So it's not as, I mean, it's for a founder that has been in, in the regular world and had raised with Unbuilt to having been a part of this current cycle of, of well-funded fintechs and investors that are really hungry to get in. It's a totally different environment. Um, yeah. For us, we're very fortunate to have really awesome investors that we did have relationships with some of them prior, like met in person prior, but for us, it was not as hard as for some entrepreneurs. And I think it's because it comes down to network credibility of the team and then traction from the customers, which is pretty undeniable at this point. Yeah. I mean, your traction, like when you have numbers, right? We can talk yeah. numbers and growth and yeah. lifetime value, like 
it makes well, lifetime value. We're still figuring that out, right? We believe that a customer is more likely to be a stickier customer, you and I both, if they have a direct deposit attached mm. to an account. We've created a that, seamless well real time. Well, you know, it's just debatable, whatever. If you want, if you want to put me in the hot seat and make me play pros and cons, I think what you do when you bring them in from a direct deposit perspective to keep them. So we switch direct deposits from a bank account to another bank account, and that's largely predicated on the value proposition, which to be fair, is $0 overdraft fees, as well as a two-day advance on a paycheck. Yep. And those, those features are not table stakes, but companies that pioneered that business model, since that's a topic today, are Chime, right? And Perk Street, ahead of its yeah. time. Ahead of its yeah, time. A little bit ahead of its time. Ahead yeah. of its time. So same with Bank Simple, slash simple, right? Yep. It's just timing, right? Like you said, this, this market is much different. Had Perk Street come come to fruition, had been building and then went through the terrible time that was COVID, right? Funds dry up. You're spending a lot on consumer acquisition, but weathered that storm and then saw that digital traction grow as a result of people being locked down, not being able to access their funds via the bank branch and like just being bored and trying new things. It, I think it would have been a totally different story. Although let me push on that and say, one of the things that I think Chris Britton team at Chime did fundamentally different is the fact that they built their own tech, which also, by the way, meant that they were able to raise enough to build their own tech. People sometimes forget uh, Perk Street was funded with $3 million. Hey, go invent banking as a service. You have $3 million to go do it, to go do what no one else has done before sort of thing. Right. But because they own the tech and the experience, because I think that was always the difference of, you know, Shamir and I've talked about this on stage many times, simple own the experience, which we couldn't afford to build, but we had a great product with a great value proposition. You need to merge those and Chime's done that. And you guys have done that, right? You're Thank enabling you. a ton of that. And I think the uh, change in the way infrastructure and cost play just make all the difference in the world. Although ironically, yes. now people are raising more money than ever before. I will say from an infrastructure perspective, having opportunities to ride on the coattails of bank connectivity, other companies that have come into fruition. So Yodely was obviously one of the first to market, but that yep. business model didn't evolve with what the market demand was. And the yep. you know fintech companies that wanted access to this couldn't afford that type of product. And Plaid and Quovo and others created a more cost-effective model for them to go to market and scale. One just went after bank accounts and neobanking. The other went after wealth management. Longer sale, larger AUM. Yep. It really could have gone either way. So the round came together. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, as you think about it, and so for those who don't know, what was it, $40 million? We raised a $40 million from seri a Series B from uh, Mercado and Greylock co-led with participation from Core Innovation Capital, Portage, and ATX Venture Partners. I would like to point out, no one invited me to invest, but whatever. You injured well those a lot of those a lot of those are existing investors. Mercado was the the new investor that joined the table from a growth perspective, but all of our investors came back and said we want to do this. So we didn't even have a pitch deck. It was a preempted round. It was I, at the time, I think Jordan's philosophy on capital raising comes to mind, which is raise money when it wants to be raised. And that's something that I appreciate more now than ever, having gone into December with COVID spiking suddenly and aggressively, and then also interest rates rising, the, the turmoil in, in Russia versus Ukraine, it's terrible. So I think it's going to start to tighten, especially from, from a capital perspective for certain companies that didn't have that initial product market fit, but we're very fortunate to have raised when we did. And then, as you know, from a financing perspective, there are, there are benefits still having a lower interest rate attached to our round. Well, I love the intersection of the phrase, raise money when the money's ready to be raised mm -hmm. in the fact that you are putting up the numbers, right? Like you can show real numbers, you're not selling vision and that makes rounds come together. But it does raise the question because it feels like every other day there's a round announced. You're like, what? And like, think back, when did you do your first graphic for CB Insights? Like what year was that? Because- 2016, October, 2016. I mean, you could fit them all on a single screen and yeah. actually see it. Oh man, when I built that first unicorn chart, there was 26 maybe. And then it was the last report. It's just a number. It's like 169 unicorns. And then how many of the original ones have gone public and or you know, merged with other companies? Wild. I mean, I picked the right market, but again, I've always just been diehard financial services. So I kind of bet with what I knew. Well, let's go to unicorns for a second. 
one of my favorite little things. So Chime has recently announced they're postponing the IPO. What is the exit path for a unicorn? SPACs are down, massively underperforming after being unicorns with rainbows flying out of places. Um, you know, we, what do we think about like for all of these unicorns, where mm-hmm. are they all going to go? Well, if you look at Stripe, they've stayed private. They've been able to put up numbers, but then you compare it to its nearest, you know, market comp in in Europe, Adyen. Adyen's public market success has been phenomenal, but Stripe has remained private. So I think a lot of the upside for the early employees and the investors is not going to be there when these companies do eventually go public because that growth is not there, but they can remain private. They have the capital, they have the runway, and they have the user base and the business model. And operating as a private business does carry some sort of benefits, especially when you're building in at the time is a pioneering space. It's trade secrets, it's customer acquisition strategies, all that stuff. Like when you go public, as you know, your S1 is facts. What is what is today versus SPACs? is actually you can be a little bit more forward looking as to where you're going to go. I think some of the SPACs, and this is a bit of a contrarian take on it, could have happened earlier in the life cycles. A lot of these companies were already unicorns. I think you could go with the Series B and the Series C if you had the revenue to support it. And then that growth potential from a SPAC, when it de-SPACs, there's upside. These companies had larger than them were mature already. Well, and that's an interesting point about where you are in the curve. Right. Like, are you going public when you're going up into the right or is it more like a private equity play? It's tough to know. Right. Some of these markets, again, are they looks like it was just the first tick of growth, but then they yeah. they go even higher because, again, just payments going fully digital as a result of covid cashless economies and this fear over having, you know, carrying cash and not being able to physically walk into a store, that was a boon for digital payments. So if you had the infrastructure to support it and you could, and you had the rails, you were in a good position. Or folks like Toast, right? Where they had the right contactless and contactless ordering, right? But you have to remember, they laid off a thousand people at the top of the pandemic. They were scared and restaurants shut down. It was very uncertain times. So they were able to weather it because they were larger in scale. Yeah, And they had diversified their business model and people were able to spin up on-demand well, delivery. And I think something that many don't recognize is Toast's ability to give you a portal and the fact that how they handle your credit card charges, right? Like they had much more dynamic processing and charging than others. Well, what, so- if, what if credit card processing had gone to zero though? And it probably did for the first couple of months. They had just raised right before COVID though. So like that for yeah. them was probably like the hallelujah moment the versus yeah. if you got trapped while your term sheet was still outstanding and then the economy shut down a lot. Of, and I talked to founders and that was sort of the emphasis of why I wanted to leave CB Insights because I just heard so much pain. And I was like, I can do better research if I'm just on my own working on fintechs versus trying to help banks, whether this, they're fine. They will always yeah. be fine. They're going to just raise they're a bunch going of, of they're going to raise a bunch of debt and then buy a bunch of these things. And you yeah. and I never want to see that happen in a way that it's unauthentic, where the, the teams don't make sense from a culture perspective, or the tech is just opportunistic versus like actually synergistic, but adds value. And those teams leave. Most of them probably didn't leave during COVID, but. Yeah. Well, so that's a great transition to like, more than ever, we're hearing this, oh, banks and fintechs, we're friends now. Like, we're no longer, you know, there to d- displace you. We're here to help you and support you. And we're, we're here to partner. And Atomic sells through financial institutions. So, like, you are truly, like, trying to build the friendship. But is this, is it desperation on a lot of the fintechs parts when they realize that cost of acquisition is actually hard? monetizing customers is hard? For fintechs, no. This has always been a primary driver of becoming top of wallet. The ability to make interchange on a card is predicated on becoming the primary bank account. And to do that as a fintech, you need to have a direct deposit. We can also enable a fractional direct deposit. So if a consumer just wants to, you know, If I can't win everything, at least win something. In some scenarios, I don't think it makes sense. If it's a full-fledged neobank like Chime, consumers are conditioned to believe that's their that could be their neobank. And it is for many millions of consumers. But for a brokerage account or for a crypto account, there might be some reservation about moving your full direct deposit into it 
right away. Rightfully so, right? That would be a little dangerous, but it is a way to try or at least even diversify out of the paycheck. I think for the banks themselves, it's the inevitability that like if everything else has gone digital, you've got an app, you've got digital account opening, but you're still requiring people to take a physical form or download a form and then fill it out and send it to HR. That experience doesn't align with their expectations. And if the neobanks have already gotten it, and they were all first to market. They were some of our first customers were some of the largest neobanks because they knew they needed it. And this was a good time. Time in COVID freed up developer resources to work on this kind of stuff. Although part of me thinks about and this is just also. Well, they were also of, always digital, right? They would never had a bank branch. They never had a bank branch. They couldn't do that. But it also makes me think a little bit about some of the um, tweeting over the weekend. Because of all things, I actually defended Zelle. And I can't believe I'm saying that on Breaking Banks because normally I'm like, Zell, I have to go to yeah. the branch for my convenience. But it was a discussion around fraud. Fraud. Yeah. Right? And so you get into the fraud discussion and like direct deposit fraud does in fact happen. And so oh, yeah. there's a reason that the physical forms exist. Well, if you're authenticating into the consumer's payroll with them in the loop, they're permissioning this access and you can authenticate that who is logging in IP location matches what's in the payroll system to the deposit account they're moving the funds into. Like you're preventing fraud actually from ever even happening. You don't even have to wait for this tailwind of two to three days and then potentially rejecting them. So it's actually, I believe, more secure in that scenario. Um, We've also built passwordless authentication for certain um, users that know their credentials and they're able to authenticate in and they want to permission us to go so back I into the system. So I would not pass because I never remember my credentials. Great. We have passwordless recovery. Um, and they're actually, I probably misspoke on that. It depends on the system that you're using. So something like an ADP, like if you don't know your credentials and you don't want us to liaise with your credentials, you could use our uplink technology to get into the system. The credentials never leave your device. We never touch them. And you're authenticated into the system. It's a form of OAuth in its first pillar. I love it. But let's go back to part of the fraud, though. In you, yeah. I think you were reading part of this over the weekend. Not as much as you, and I don't know as much about consumer what, fraud as you do, because you saw it. And you had no what, tech back then to, to like fix it, so I'm yeah. dying. Well, I mean, it was one of the challenges, interestingly enough, at Park Street. So I was one of the first, well, actually, I was the first institutional investor at Memento which was bought by FIS, which was one of the first kind of uh, enterprise fraud management for banks. And as a result, I learned a lot. So at Perk Street, we actually built soup to nuts. We didn't build our own user interface, but we did build our own fraud database. And the reason was we realized fraud was very different than most of financial services looked at it because fraud for us was a spectrum from, we had rewards fraud, which was people who were actually manipulating the system. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, having I'm sure it's still a, relevant today. Oh yeah, um, and, and nine, prevalent. Yes, you know when the U.S. Mint uh, allowed or they did free shipping for the dollar coins, and so we were running a two percent offer on cash back, and they the mint only accepted debit cards. So people would take our debit card. Mm-hmm. would max their account, physically ship coins to themselves, okay. go to a physical branch, deposit the coins, wire the coins, oh my goodness. value back to Perk Street and recycle that. And we're like, what the heck, right? So there's rewards fraud, not using the account as intended. There's also the, it's not really fraud, but it's called the offer fraud, which yeah. is like oh, yeah. you, you came in and you're not actually using the account, right? And so we took this holistic view. And so we rethought our data architecture. And for us, we could manage it because we were small. And when I think about like at an enterprise level of the, the size of, call it a mid-sized bank, even up to the, the biggest of banks, right? Fraud is such a big issue now that is not unified, which still mystifies me that there is not a unified, more unified effort against fraud. And I'm guessing like you guys are just touching the outsides of those things. Absolutely. It's not our core competency. There's multi-billion dollar companies that have been built off of this fraud prevention premise. But they're still not solving it. But one place you guys can play is around identity, right? Like, which is the other big issue, which is how do I know you are who you say you are? 
Right. Yeah. It's, I believe it's a very good measure as a secondary control, the primary control being how you AML KYC based on what is required by your partner bank. We could be a secondary form of that because you can log into a payroll system, which is an independent source of data outside of that consumer's existing accounts if they have them somewhere else. And if they're sending you PDF forms of their pay stubs, we can pull those directly into a system or give you a data pull. I've always thought the multi-account is the answer to the question here, right? If I can begin to look at user behavior across multiple accounts mm-hmm. and begin to align those stars and mm-hmm. create a constellation around that, like mm-hmm. the data d- doesn't lie. Your password right. may, your, True. you know. But how you use your password or how fast you type your password or yes. where you're, yeah, absolutely. And there are companies or, working on this. Or how many times your password is used like within milliseconds, right? Back Mm -hmm. to your faster, right? It's like, I'm probably not typing it in, in five sites at the same time. Definitely not. Yeah, that's a good point. In the way a computer does, right? Right. And some are like Sardine are doing phenomenal things. Exactly what came to my mind. Is that what you were thinking about? Oh, I still remember their demo at uh, Moves DevCon when they were talking about using the GPS in the phone not just the GPS, but like, is the phone being rotated in the way that like a person would use it, right? Mm -hmm. So then what do the fraudsters come up with? They rotate the phones, right? Like while they're syncing it. And so then it's like, what's the next iteration? Like the never ending battle associated with fraud. It's such small dollar petty fraud. It's not to a consumer, right? But like to a big bank, it's like they don't orchestrate these things because they're dealing with all kinds of other types of fraud. And some of these things, they just don't report them because they're just not big enough. And that's sad because it impacts their user's experience. And like that kind of stuff damages trust and that you can't buy back. Well, and this comes back to the argument that we were having and why I defended Zell is if someone convinces you to give you them your username and password, like who's at, you know, at fault here? should the bank be responsible under Reg E? And the question becomes, you know, where does responsibility lie? And as we get into like the whole Web3 world now mm-hmm. of tokens and crypto and NFTs and defrauding, and I forget the pitch. Um, well, I remember the pitch, I don't remember <laughs> the names, but I got a pitch this morning of evidently a porn star yeah. is now like, stolen like several million dollars because she was promoting an nft and then like ditched it Hmm. it's like well that's interesting and who regulates it and where do we go with that just one note on the adult entertainment industry they don't have a bank their money is viewed as lewd they can't bring cash into deposits so they've already been disincentivized by the system to not follow the rules so is that is that a loophole or is that just recognizing that there's never been a support mechanism financially? The disincentivized by the system is a super interesting point about like, is it a loophole or a way of life? I think the NFT scenario is the the loophole. You see all these other people getting rich off of it. And you already know how the dark market works in terms of getting cash in and out of the system, because that's all you've ever known. Yeah. So same with cannabis. I could take, you know, the vice industry, the cannabis industry, People that have had to work in cash-heavy economies that have otherwise not had access to the, the system because their work is not viewed as legal real work. Well, and it makes me think about, um, what was it? Netflix uh, series called High Profits on the mm-hmm. birth of the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not a pot user. It turns out it just makes me thirsty. So oh. it doesn't work for me. Um, we'll stick to but, Vino. Yeah, but fascinating entrepreneurial like journeys of people taking risks. But one of the things, and all I could think about was, you know, the Ben Maserich, I'm like, this is breaking Vegas. They have cash. They're literally sleeping on piles of cash and trying to figure out what to do with it. And then they're like, well, I have to go to the casinos and I'll use casinos to turn it into coins, also known as chips. Mm-hmm. And use chips as the way to launder this. Yeah. Backward. Yes, very backward. All right, so we're going to wrap up. This is the first part, all done. We're going to switch from the fine wine to the solo cup episode. We're going to talk about 
the solo GPs in the second half here. Oh man. In changing business models. Okay. We're probably not doing solo cups. Although I did go buy solo cups for the first time since college. Right I was here. like, oh my God, you're so funny. That's so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was joking. I was half joking. Like, that's so great. And I was like, nah, man, I could do better on our title. No, it was fun. And uh, by the way, we're out of uh, cinnamon toast. So I had to go to the grocery store anyway. <laughs> when you have a three-year-old and you're just like, I'll, it's get, all cinnamon I'll get cinnamon toast. No Brussels sprouts? The low cups. Now they eat Brussels. They're good. You can They're eat your good. Brussels. No, that like the stuff's going to get stuck in my teeth. I'll eat it later. Nah, it's fine. <laughs> It's like everything's bagel spice is all over it. It's going to be a disaster. Everything bagel spice. That's yeah. a disaster. It needs to be on everything. That's what it says on the back. It says everything I spice. On everything. Yeah, it says everything, right? That's what that means. Everything. Everything. This is fun. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Hey, and we're back. So in the first half, we kind of talked all things FinTech and Fine Wine. And now Lindsay had suggested it and she had joked, she's like, we call it solo cups and solo GPs, which is a big trend in the venture capital world, which we want to unpack. But I want to pull that back. We're going to talk about changing business models within financial services and within FinTech. And why don't we start with the sole GP trend right now, because I think that is a seed is not something a lot of people are following. And so Lindsay, you brought it up. Why don't I turn it over to you? Like you want to throw out the sole GP thing. I don't have the data on this, but only because we are doing this on the fly. However, I'm sure during COVID you've seen as much as I've seen and many fintech companies at this stage have minted their own internal wealthy, high net wealthy individuals that have in turn, started to invest the money back into the fintech ecosystem, rightfully so. Maybe they don't want to go off and join funds or they're not at that stage because funds have limited seats. They started to invest and the syndicate market via Angel Invest and other platforms have enabled the rise of solo GP. People are doing rolling funds. I think every entrepreneur that's exited has then since said, and now I'm doing a rolling fund. So I think from my perspective, it's a good thing in the sense where you've got more money that's flowing into and back into the system. But from a, how do I, as an entrepreneur, focus my time and attention? It's, I think it still maintains that you should focus on bringing people on your cap table that add actual value outside of the check. And that's not necessarily going to be a sole GP's focus if that's they're working as a solo operator and they've got a portfolio of 10 to 15 companies. Yeah. Do you really think you're going to get time and attention? without having resources, they all eventually evolve, I think, into growing their teams and you start to see it happen if they're successful. Although you're seeing a lot that sold GPs doing, you know, I'm an investor in a fund that is targeting doing 50 deals with a that's, sold GP. And that seems more like a mercenary model. They will write checks and spray and maybe pray and then move on. I was going to say the spray and pray, which is so weird to me. So I raised my first venture round 
dating myself, 1999. Our smallest angel check was 250. Wow. And now, and, and that was $250 for clarification. No, $250,000. Oh, okay. Just, just, I mean, you said the nineties. I mean, those yeah. are wild times. Um, but it was crazy now to see this trend towards people. I was like, I'm an angel investor. How much are you investing? Thousand, fifteen hundred. Like on one hand, it's good. It's democratization. On the other hand, like this rise of solo GPs is also funding a lot more quickly. Like if I put on my former VC hat and then my corporate VC hat, we had process, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're all about our investor process and our investment committee. You don't have committee when you have a solo GP, right? You have the autocrat, which is both good and bad, which leads to a flurry of funding and a flurry of innovation, which makes me wonder though, like we think about the long-term product development, you know, where does this go, right? Like, so we're going to end at the bottom of the pyramid, a ton of things funded. They need to raise the next level of funding. In today's environment, there's a lot of checks willing to be written. But in the next kind of tier, can they raise the next round, right? Like, so are we creating an artificial bubble in the middle, right? That starts to choke the system and it absorbs talent. It absorbs customers, right? Like overfunding a space leads to like the real winners aren't going to actually get the customers they need to be self-sustaining. I'm curious now you're an operator. How do you think about that? We went the traditional route in the sense where I think you go pre-seed, friends, family, ecosystem, people that you want to bring in as you're ready to go to your seed, had core innovation and portage as part of that seed round, then also did core innovation as part of our series A and portage and then Greylock. And then this investment, Mercado joined. So we've continued to have our investors up their investments in Atomic, which feels incredibly good. And I recognize, again, we're fortunate to have serial entrepreneurs, product market fit, and initial traction in a pretty white hot market as payroll connectivity is today. But to your point, if you've got so much early money going into the system for funds, and you know this because you have a fund, you need to have a certain percentage of that check represent a certain percentage of that company for that money to have a return. So these smaller rounds, if you're giving away that ability for those funds to come in because they're not going to own enough because they have commitments that they need to own X percent per round. It's actually worse in that scenario. Well, this is not meant to be an advertisement, but we actually flipped that model on the head. We don't have minimum ownership commitment. We intentionally raised a small fund and but you bring a, you bring expertise and banks to the table. So for a B two B company, and banks, and so you so have you're not a solo in that scenario. We're not a solo, right? And we actually do have an investment committee in process. We move relatively nimbly. Mm-hmm. VCs have had to move faster though, and I think it's yes. great for entrepreneurs. Like there's none of yeah. this delayed. Like you have an answer. We're in or we're out. Like they have to get conviction much faster and in a remote first environment where they've never met yeah. you. It's wild. When I was in VC in the early 2000s, I used to call it the shits method of investing. Show high interest, then stall, right? Always <gasps> wait for oh, the next. Oh, goodness. Right? It's in like a pres- bad second date. <laughs> but, it's been three days. He hasn't called. But wait oh. to see what else could turn up. Like who else is going to respond and swipe right? What else oh. does she say? You know, like that's the whole thing, right? Like if I if I have the power, which, you know, it's always a cycle and it will return to, it becomes a buyer's market, not a seller's market where right now it is definitely a seller's market. So speed is up when it becomes a buyer's market. It is, you said you were going to deliver X in this quarter. Where Mm -hmm. is X before I write my check? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you had three LOIs. How many have closed? You said product, you know, all these things that you can wait for, right? The show high interest, then stall and get information. And that'll continue to go back and forth. But I think the rise of the solo GP, especially in financial services, is going to be actually very profound in the impact because it's going to create a much more diverse set of funding 
and it's not all going to work, but think about it, like put on your like, you know, uh, evolutionary hat here. We have just seeded a much richer, wider base of genetic material that is going to evolve. In I, what it, I do agree with diversity and funding types because part of this, it was VCs, corp VCs, maybe strategics, friends and family. So it does open up the pool of opportunity. But I do have a contrarian perspective on how much value that solo can add with 50 other portfolio companies and no apparatus to support them and then no follow-on funds. So again, the ability to raise your first fund is a Spray miracle. And, pray. and then your ability to raise a second fund is even harder than that. So to be able to prove returns on, on 50 spray and praise and like, what was your value add in that small period of time, the getting to market, right? Four to five months, if you're trying to spin up a bank account, it takes time and it takes capital, it takes team. So I'm a little skeptical on that as like the most disruptive thing we can do. I think when the ICO craze started to come around, I was that just is about when to say got very scared. <laughs> yeah. Cause you could just raise money on the internet and then a lot of that ended up being fraud, but a token or some form of a digital asset that could be truly disruptive. Cause then you're also saving on all of the excess fees that happen as part of a round that the company often has to pay for the closing, the lawyers, a lot of what sometimes goes on. Diligence. Sometimes diligence. Not right on, now. Right. Not right sellers now because you're not flying. Well, the funny thing that you keep saying is seller's market. Venture capital is a form of sell. You're selling money and a well, vision to some degree. Yeah, like yeah, take yeah. our take our check. Why is that different than so-and-so's check? Because we have all this other stuff. Well, they say they have all that stuff too. You're selling me capital if I'm the entrepreneur true. in this scenario. True, true, true. I was thinking about it from the into equity. like all I was the thinking about the, I was get. just thinking about I get the it. equity. Stock, I get it. stock. But again, we we're preempted. Start. We were preempted. So it's like we weren't selling, but we had a we had a scenario where venture capital was well, like, no, you need you, were, you need the check. You were selling. You're the one who is doing it. You just had a hungry buyer who's willing to come in and says, Tell me the price. I think you eventually planned to do these things, but it was just we didn't even have a pitch deck. Yeah. I didn't mean cool. seller is diminutive. I know, I know, I know. But I just think of venture capital as a form of salesmanship. They, the best they ones are money. very good. They're very they good. Had, yeah. They hop on planes and they show up with a check before you need it. And you're like, whoa. And swag. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. 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 I don't but know. Let, let's bring this back. How does this hit the banks, right? Because I think the banks aren't fully thinking through like incumbent financial institutions are not really catching what the chases of the world are doing, right? So we talked about at the opener, the jump from one to 8 billion being mm -hmm. spent in investments in aqua hires in terms of spreading bets. Boom, right. aqua hires right there. That's what it costs. The costs of tech talent these days are, you're trying to convince them to not go to a tier one tech company now it's your one set of unicorn companies and you could we could work wherever you want remotely. And then JP Morgan's competing with what? They have to hire. Tell me to come into the office? Yeah, right. In any scenario, not just JP Morgan, like any bank yeah. that's hauling back their, yeah, their contingency, like you have to come back to New York and you've got to be here at least three or four days a week. Yeah. That's, so yeah, Aqua Hire, I would think that. And that's like, just like you said, finding these Literally target those lists of solo funds and see all of their portfolio companies, see if any of the tech is interesting. Well, but I think JP Morgan is doing something interesting mm -hmm. where by doing a bunch of investments, they're, they're not going to actually own, own and operate traditional model. They're going to do the, like, I'm a, you know, large shareholder influence and partner and maybe keep you as a constellation, not actually bring you fully in. And I don't know if Jamie can get his head fully around that because he does like a little bit of command and control, but it does seem like a savvy move in a world of great resignation and rising tech talent costs and rising competitiveness for like, how do I actually bring in so much more value than I can pay for, right? Like that's the other downside, right? Is if I acquire, like 
acquire implies things weren't working. I gave you a soft landing. Acquire says I pay a premium. Exactly. And you have to keep double that amount on the balance sheet as goodwill until the investment closes and the tech is fully integrated, which is why it's so much harder for a bank to M&A. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting though. It would be, if I'd looked at the data to see if they are willing to go earlier stage. So there's like an incentive as an early stage company. If you start to raise strategic too early, then it could cut off potential channels for you. However, if everybody else is going earlier, and they are, and even earlier stage companies, like the yeah. VC funds are starting to raise growth funds because they know they need to stay on board. Are the banks going to start to move down channel and will that, that negative signaling start to go away? That's an interesting, interesting move, right? Like the whole idea- It would be signaling. good. It would be good for, for entrepreneurs because then they don't have to think so hard about like, oh, I want to work with both this bank and that bank, but if I take money from that one, then I can't do that. You can do that at the growth stage because at that point, it's like, you can't, if you block us, you like, you're no. just, you're just yeah. missing out on the growth. That's silly. Yeah. And that was my problem at first Marblehead with the, our corporate fund is I always had to look and like, if I invest, does that mean that our XYZ com, like competitors won't actually work with them? I mean, you're probably one of the only species to th- thought that for that investor, Yeah. but then again, to not even look then also sends the wrong signal. Yeah. I want to shift gears as we're running out of time about changing business models, fees, specifically Mm. overdraft fees, right? Like, yes, it's about time, but it it ties back to this, like get early access to your wages. I mean, you're not, that's not a freaking benefit. Like they're your wages sort of thing. Where's the, in this is what, roughly 25% of major banks' um, income stream comes from fees and mainly punitive fees. Right. Right. And fintechs have, for better or for worse, some have done it for marketing, some have done it because they can reduce the fees, right? Mm-hmm. So the playing field is changing. How do you think about the business model? of like financial services changing? Like where are the levers? Cause I don't think anyone would have said five years ago is like, oh yeah, overdraft fees are going to zero. I did. Oh yeah, you did. Uh, but I was also one of those Send people me. that, that was one of, no, it's not, it's in CNBC actually. So when Robin- I know, was, no, no, no. When everybody know, was going down to zero. It was zero. one of our first arguments where you're like, yeah. like, I don't think the industry will ever do it though. And you're like, yeah. it's going to happen. I'm like, yeah, but they're addicted to it. It should happen, but they're addicted. Well, if you're addicted to being alive still. Yeah. Also, okay. the CFPB is coming down on on any kind of nefarious activity against consumers. That's just one little area that they've been focused on. They know that that exists and they've, they've hauled them all into Congress to have those conversations. You've also got BNPL being looked at aggressively as an alternative form of credit cards. And then people apparently are financing their student debt with forms of BNPL right now. So anything that comes across as predatory or consumers start complaining about it, the CFPB is going to take very, very seriously. So I think that that is also a tailwind in this favor, but that I couldn't have predicted. It, it's, it I spins mean, both when ways. we had the conversation, BNPL didn't exist, in all fairness. Fair. And it, just in the scenario where the political tailwinds had shifted so aggressively since the last time we chatted, I think that that is something that you'd always hope for, but to get a very aggressive consumer first organization in there, but however, that can make them very hard nosed based on who are their, their coffers, like what political agendas do they need to support to keep their base happy, especially going into an election year. So if there's certain narratives, like we believe in fair, equal access to financial data, payroll data should be included in that because what you make net gross, all the data that is unlocked by payroll connectivity behind the paycheck is empowering so many financial services, but it's not considered such today. So that is a form of unlocking a new business model because to what you sort of suggested was earned wage access, but what the bank could actually do, because they can't do this today, they don't know how much a consumer makes from a gross net income perspective. They don't know if they get a bonus. They don't even know how many hours that consumer works. If they are a regular worker or a part-time worker, a contractor, gig worker, all of these things. Can I just call it like one of my grand predictions from uh, two years ago now? actually almost three, the credit score needs 
to die, right? Like it is not as powerful as your payroll data. Absolutely not. But I think payroll has a role to play in what is a modern credit score. You're going to always need some form of underwriting and you can't just say it's going to. I'm not saying underwriting goes away. I'm saying it's predicated on the credit score. A a black box Mm -hmm. that says you have a number that you don't know what the number comes from other than your ability to take out debt and repay the debt. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that, how is, much you make should go into that. Like how much you make should predicate and your how ability much you to spend repay and where yeah. the money goes. Yeah. Or do you have an investment account? Do you have banked PTO days that you don't take because you're such a hard worker, right? There's so many things that are unlocked by the paycheck. I agree with you. I, I think it's hard to tell consumers that the death of the credit score is coming versus walk the line with them to help evolve the credit score. And we don't need to call it a credit score. It's just sort of an arbitrary name. Like a bank is not really a bank anymore. It's evolved. Do you think consumers care if it's called yeah. a credit score? Especially when their credit score is below prime. Yeah, absolutely. They're getting rejected for a loan and they need that loan. So they care about the outlets. Do they care about like what their score? Well, I think they probably do, don't they? Right? Like They're numbers, hardwired to know it now. Numbers yeah. simplify it, especially when you're one who's below a limit. That was the beauty of credit karma. It's simplicity. It's it's little barometer. Here's how healthy you are. Here's how you're getting better. They've, they found a way to gamify it for hundred million consumers for free. For free. <laughs> I mean, it's still this episode s- brought to you by credit card. <laughs> I, I mean, that's just one that was just, that's one that just was healthy. It towed the line, it kept building, kept innovating. And then when they sold right before COVID sort of took over, good time. <laughs> yeah. Good. I mean, timing is everything, but I mean, they would have been okay because they had a hundred million loyal consumers. There's so many things you could do with that product that were just not quite unlocked yet. Like the savings account, the checking account that they had offered. Yeah. I just always thought it was silly that I would file my, te- my, my tax return. And this is one of the things I'll get into after when you say what's still left to be unlocked. I would file my tax return and then I would just put in my account routing number to my primary bank. Why wouldn't I just open a, an account and they just give me that 2% or that 1% incentive or real-time access to the funds? That that just, I just tweeted about this a couple of years ago because I just thought it was such like a, it was a knockout feature and then TurboTax then ends up buying them, but then they have to sell the the, um, the tax business to, yeah. to, to block such where. And so one of the last pools, largest pools of untapped liquidity is the tax return. Billions of dollars that consumers just wait around for. 75% of consumers get a tax refund. The ability to tap that money in real time or the ability to borrow against it slash it's not really borrowing because it's your money and it's just sitting in a non-interest fee bearing account with the IRS. Why can't you tap into it early? And we are doing something akin to this with our partner, Column Tax, in the space, working with Clover and Yada, but tapping year-round tax returns. It's one of the small last bastions of large pools of capital that we can tap into to put more money in consumers' pocket when they need it most. Why not? Well, I mean, one of the problems is a lot of people treat that as their savings account. That right? bears no interest. That bears we, no interest, but then they what if we put the it in a real interest and they're like, account. What and this is all good marketing. What if I reuse that money? It's like, how are you going to use your tax you know refund? It's like, well, you mean how am I going to use my money, the money that I should have been directing somewhere else all along. Do you know when most people file their taxes? No. As soon as the portal opens, because they need the money. Yeah. They're in dire need of that money. They're not waiting around for it, planning a vacation. They're like, finally, I could tap into this money. And then yep. they're companies yeah. like Chime, miraculously enough, that allows consumers to get access to that fund just two days in advance. Same thing they do on the regular business model. They did it for the uh, stimulus checks and then they did it for tax returns. It's just like, they're re- rinsed and repeating I'm the same thing because they understand that it works. ACH risk. I'll take ACH risk. That's all they're saying. It's, it's a couple really hundred, innovation. it's a couple hundred bucks. It's not that, it's not, yeah. I mean, and also ACH risk is a topic for another day, but- why does it have to be a siege? Because everything else is so expensive. Well, that's just an excuse. Man. All Man. Right. 
we wanted to talk about what is left untapped. We have six minutes left. What in fintech is untapped? Because right now the space is exploding. Everything is embedded in Web3 and MNFT this and blockchain that. We still haven't solved hard, hard problems. Again, access to that's earned, where I was earned, go. earned but unpaid wages, man. It's a viral benefit, and it keeps consumers employed at their employer when they offer it because it's such a goodwill benefit. That's a simple one. That's I was going to go fraud and identity. Like that's you would ask me, it's like I'm like, for the love of all that is holy, like why? It's such a big. It's friction in the system. It, that is, that's another one. Immigrant banking, access to a bank account in this country if you don't have a social security nar- num- number is hamstrung by false barriers. So I don't know that much about that. I do know it from the student lending from my uh, Marblehead days. But like, so if you come here and you don't have a social or a tax ID or right to work, right? like how hard is it? Very hard. I can't speak to it because I have the social security number. So mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't walked a mile in those shoes yet, but our, our partners welcome tech. They have a community of 9 million members that are largely Hispanic that come to this country just to exchange, you know, they come to work, but as a community, they exchange financial information with one another, try and help each other, build each other up. They have 3 million account holders for their, their financial services products. They found a partner bank that would allow them to offer bank accounts. And then as a secondary form of identity, we can say, yeah, they're employed. They have a job. They've been valid workers here. They have income coming in. You should absolutely bank this individual. They're actually probably more credit worthy because they come believing in the American dream. And we won't even give them a bank account and the ability to contribute to the economy in a you know financially trackable way. That's That's just backwards, absolutely backwards. And they're no longer the ethnic minority anymore. They're going to be the majority. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to the business models need to change from funds to banking, right? Where it's like the traditional, like, oh, you fit in this box and I can lend you this and I can give you that doesn't work with numbers where it's like, we, you know, it's thin files and, you know, most of the credit space, right? Like you don't have a credit file. And so I'm not going to lend to you. You come to the country, you don't have a file, right? So I'm not going to lend, but I can see that you're a worker and you work 60 hours a week consistently and you make X, you know, like how do we rework that model? Mm -hmm. And I think Uh, the key. Yeah, sorry. No, keep going. I love it. Well, and pull out this, like your appeal to me used to be, I knew that I was going to get X amount of fee income off of you, right? Because you can't afford to have a credit card. So you're going to overdraft like, because you don't, I can't give you, you know, a certain set of things, or I don't think, or I don't want to give you a certain set of things. Right. That, that mentality that also needs to go right. Like this consumer is not bankable based on my arbitrary math. And because I don't, I can't empathize with your situation. Yes. The old way of thinking is it doesn't work. Where were you going to go? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big one. Just rethinking the thing. I was just thinking before RBG, a female could not get a bank account without her husband. What would I be doing right now? I would have a crypto farm somewhere. I'd be ICOing it or I'd be, you know, faking until I make it with my NFTs. Like, what would I be doing if I didn't have, you know, that in, if that precedent had already passed coming into International Women's Day, which is probably a good way to cut it off, but I couldn't get a mortgage. So much I couldn't do in this country prior to people that stood up for women and women's rights. And I think we need the same thing for the immigrant population as, as much as we do for anybody else. I mean, we didn't plan to tie this into International no. Women's Day, but <laughs> as much as you bag on- every, every, every way to segue. If we pull it back, how much of the system is set up to protect the system as opposed to help the individual, right? Where if we think about like, why couldn't women get a bank account? Because, well, men were the age earners. Constitution. Right, and 
the a whole host of things and immigrants and minorities like the whole thing plays out that our business models need to take a ton of scar tissue out right like we have scar tissue in our business models and we're addicted to things like overdraft fees and atm fees and things that i've been able to charge why because i could not that i should but because i could not because it provided value to the other side Mm -hmm. right and that's where i think this needs to go and it, it even ties back to the solo gp conversation and the acquisition it's like where do we take out scar tissue and it's not tech for tech sake and it's not better uis it's about how do we create efficiencies that create values that can be distributed to both sides right for the one who made it and the one who's like buying it i don't know it's still early innings but i was thinking back on that argument about solo GPs and the value there is they are disrupting a business model and it takes disruption to enable disruption. Again, the reason why some of these things have stayed as stodgy as they are because these are publicly traded banks. They have shareholders, they have investor obligations, they have fiduciary responsibilities. How, if they haven't figured out how to offset that, are they going to justify that, get that to their own boards? And it's something that happened before they inherited the job, right? But if you can prove, if you can prove it, and fintech companies in some scenarios are that you can monetize in other ways, then you can move the system forward. But it takes a lot of capital, it takes money to change money. It takes money to change money, but it also the idea that you can get seed money to prove value out and change the system. And then you have bigger banks, whether it be a community bank or a JP Morgan, that's willing to then invest in it. Actually, to me- They need to try it. They need to do more than just invest in it. Put your skin in the game. Agreed. Well, thanks for joining Late Night Post. Thank you for having me. Post Kid Put Down, but it's been fun rapping with you. Likewise. Hey, we didn't cover. Yeah, I know. We're going to be in person. Yeah. In a couple days, South by Southwest, you're a noob. You're going to love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very noob. Are you doing the the YMCA? Are you doing the YMCA right now? South by Southwest. I I, I see what you're trying. Yeah. I think I got it right. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. I won't. I won't. All right. Here is why, and I'll put this in the show notes, every bank should attend. So, I joined the board of South by 10-ish years ago, and it blew my mind because South by Southwest is kind of the future of experience. It's the first time I saw a voice first. It was my first experience with machine learning, my first experience with AI. And if you're in financial services and you're, and by the way, I'm not paid for this, like and I'm no longer affiliated. This is just the wrap on. The reason to go is you can look at your digital roadmap two to three years out. Go to South by and see what the world is going to look like seven to 10 years out. And go with an open mind. And a glass of wine. In comfortable shoes, a phone (laughs) charger, and a lot of water because it's a lot. And that's the reason to go. I'm sold, but I was already sold because Jason. You're already going. I know. And (laughs) Alloy Labs is hosting a fintech house, and we are sponsoring as Atomic. So if you're going to South by, come record some content. Come record some content. Bring them Um, to go. Drop us a DM, and you can get an invite. So Lindsay, thanks for joining late night. Really appreciate it. And we'll have to do, we didn't actually put anything in our solo cups, but it was fun to say FinTech and fine wine and solo cups and solo GPs, but. I've got a slew of marketing ideas. Don't worry. We're good. It's all good. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.